Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. Today on Miranda Warnings, we're honored to have Jay Johnson, former Secretary of Homeland Security under President Obama and currently a partner at Paul Weiss in New York City. Mr. Secretary, thank you. Welcome. Dave, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion. And I should add, I've been a proud member of the New York State Bar Association now for, I think, about 36 years. That's great. We love to hear it. And uh, I know that you've had a, uh, a wonderful career already, and we're going to talk about some of your time in public service. But why don't you start off by telling us why it is that you initially got involved in the law and then eventually public service? That's an interesting question. I like to track back to when I had my political awakening my awakening of the larger world around me. I grew up in upstate New York in the Hudson Valley in a little town called Wappingers Falls, New York. Some of your listeners may have heard of it or perhaps even live nearby. And the year that I realized there was this larger world around me in the Hudson Valley was 1968. A lot of things happened in 1968. The Vietnam War the presidential election, the King assassination, the Kennedy assassination, Apollo 8. And it was then that I developed an interest in public affairs and all that was going on in the big world. I went to Morehouse College, went down to Atlanta, Georgia, where Morehouse is in 1975. Morehouse is an HBCU. It's the only all-male black college in the country. Martin Luther King is a graduate of Morehouse College. I went to college with his son, Martin Luther King III. And that was where I gained a lot of inspiration for all that I've done since. But one summer while I was in college, between my sophomore and junior year, I worked on Capitol Hill as an intern for a wonderful member of Congress and a wonderful public servant named Hamilton Fish who was our representative in the Hudson Valley. And Ham Fish was the fourth generation member of Congress. He was a moderate Republican. His great grandfather was in Lincoln's cabinet and he was the fourth person in his generation to represent the Hudson Valley in Congress. And I worked for him for a summer, had a terrific experience and then The following summer, I was lucky enough to get hired as an intern for Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, 1978. And it was really there that I developed an interest in public service, public affairs, and the law. So when I finished college, I was pretty much intent on going to law school, and I was admitted to Columbia Law School. And by that point, I had developed sort of a twin objective of having a career in law practice in a large firm in New York, but I also kept an interest in public service alive through those years. So I was at Paul Weiss in the 1980s, and I think it's fair to say I was on the partnership track. 
but I also had an interest in public service, so I applied to become an assistant U.S. attorney, and Rudy Giuliani hired me in 1988, and I did that for three years, and it was a terrific experience, and that plus my private law experience early on in my career at Paul Weiss are really the two things that helped define all the rest of my career. So you started uh, your career, your legal career at Paul Weiss, and you've taken uh, several intermittent breaks uh, to serve your country, first as uh, assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and then later uh, general counsel for the Air Force under President Clinton, uh, general counsel for the Defense Department under President Obama. And in, in be in between those, you actually had returned uh, to uh, to Paul Weiss, uh, and uh, four times. Uh, and this is right. This is your fourth time back at Paul Weiss. I am like a bad penny. I have left Paul Weiss four times and returned four times. Well, you obviously have a special five, relationship with the five firm. start dates yeah. at Paul Weiss. That's November really... nineteen eighty four, January nineteen ninety two. January 2001, January 2013, and January 2017. How do you find making the transition back from government service into uh, law practice? Well, that's interesting. Each one has been a little different. When I came back from the U.S. Attorney's Office in January 1992, I would have to say that was the roughest transition. I had been an assistant U.S. attorney for three years. I was in court every day. In three years, I tried 12 cases, argued 11 appeals, had a lot of autonomy. And when I came back to Paul Weiss, I was still an associate. I was a senior associate, and I was on a track where they had told me, wait another two years and hopefully you become a partner. But still, it, I had to readjust to big firm, the big firm environment. And... I was not going to court every day, uh, and that was that. That took a while to get used to again. And there was a point where I said, "Gee, maybe I ought to go back to the U.S. Attorney's office." And then wiser heads talked me into staying, and I'm I'm glad they did because I became a partner two years later. This last go round uh, was very much expected and anticipated. Um, I was leaving with the whole Obama administration, so I knew it was coming, and I, in fact, I had an app on my phone counting down the days, hours, minutes, seconds until January 20, 2017, when I would leave office and return to being a private citizen again. So uh, this last this last transition was probably the most welcome. And so, you know, you were appointed by President Obama as uh, Secretary of Homeland Security in 2013. Uh, and as you said, you had this app that uh, you were counting down the, the days uh, to January 20th when you were going to re resign. And then you intended to resign on that day. And then uh, you were asked to stay on for a few hours, which, yep. now, which now makes you perhaps a trivia question because you were the first cabinet secretary for now President Trump for a few hours. And for seven hours, 32 minutes, <laughs> I was the entirety of Donald Trump's cabinet uh, because I was the designated survivor that day. And you have to have somebody in the presidential line of succession to absent themselves from the 
event, whatever that is, whether it's the State of the Union or an inauguration, and on inauguration day, the whole cabinet is resigning. So I stayed on. I had to amend my resignation letter and I, to, to say I leave upon the appointment of my successor, who was John Kelly at the time. And so I stayed on an extra seven and a half hours, and what that meant was simply coming home a day early to my permanent home in Montclair, New Jersey. And as a result, um, I was, as you say, I was a holdover and I was the entirety of his cabinet. And I have the distinction also of being the first member of his administration to resign as well. And so you you, you started the trend, I think, uh, after that. Well, in an instant, (laughs) think about this, this doesn't happen to too many people. In an instant, I went from being the Secretary of Homeland Security with a Secret Service detail, the designated survivor, fourth or fifth in the presidential line of succession, to private citizen with no entourage, and I was a very happy person. Now, I've been designated survivor twice, State of the Union 2016 and inauguration January 2017. And what I didn't know, the first time I was designated survivor, I had to go to an undisclosed location. What I didn't know is that the White House puts out a statement announcing who the designated survivor is. So I'll never forget, I'm sitting in my undisclosed location watching Chris Matthews on TV, and Chris Matthews is handed a bulletin. We've just learned that Jay Johnson is the designated survivor, and I nearly fell out of my chair. (laughs) And Chris said something very apt for the situation. He said, well, that makes sense, since no presidency named Johnson begins well. Wow. Wow. So, so you were so the first time you were in an undisclosed location, but the 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 last time you were you were just at your home, is is that what? Yes, I was, and that was not a big secret. Right. I just came came home to our permanent home a day early, and stayed put for a day. So I can imagine that there was a, a giant weight lifted off of you, as uh, Secretary of Homeland Security. You were responsible for over two hundred and thirty thousand employees, over twenty agencies, border security, uh, FEMA, c- cybersecurity. Uh, yes. It's just an enormous challenge. Can tell us uh, of all that. What was what was the biggest challenge that you felt during your time? as as Homeland Security Secretary? Well, there were sort of the big three issues on my watch, counterterrorism, cybersecurity, and immigration. But we also always had to stay focused on response to natural disasters, aviation security, the Secret Service, the protection of our national leaders. And so DHS is the third largest cabinet level department of the U.S. government, but is probably the most decentralized because of the vast differences in the cultures of the components and their their mission set, everything from FEMA to the Coast Guard to TSA uh, to the immigration components. And so there was a lot to cover, but I wound up focused mostly on counterterrorism, immigration, and cybersecurity, response to to cyber attacks, and learned a lot about what it takes to be the CEO of a very large decentralized organization. 
And what I ended up doing was where I could and where it mattered, delegating a lot to our senior leadership team, the heads of the components. Craig Fugate, for example, was our FEMA administrator when I was Secretary of Homeland Security. And Craig really was a, a national asset and needed very little oversight because he just knew hurricanes and floods and tornadoes better than anybody. And um, so it was a fascinating, challenging time. Uh, there were a lot of nights I didn't sleep well. And as you recall, we had a number of small-scale terrorist attacks in the years 2014, 15, 16 that kept me up at night and were uh, something that we needed to respond to. And I used to tell my folks, let's not respond to the last attack. You always have to be ready to respond to the next one. And so we had San Bernardino, we had Orlando, uh, and a number of others that uh, were a real challenge at the time. Well, let's talk. I want to talk a little bit about uh, cyber terrorism, of course. You know, the issues that you dealt with are issues that we're, we're still dealing with uh, today. Uh, as Secretary of Homeland Security, you were there during this uh, presidential election during summer of 2016 when there was, uh, you know, Democratic National Committee email servers were compromised. Um, how big of a threat is cyber terrorism? to our nation uh, today? Well, in terms of terrorist organizations, I would say that terrorist groups are not as sophisticated in cyberspace as, say, nation-state actors mm. or cyber criminals that are out there, some large cyber criminal networks. I think it's in terms of the threat in cyberspace from terrorist organizations, um, it's it's evolving and not as serious as the cyber threat from nation states, cyber criminals, those who engage in ransomware, those who engage in cyber theft. It is the case that, in my view, we've yet to turn the corner on our cybersecurity and those on offense have the upper hand. You noted that in 2016, we had the Russian interference with our presidential election. That was something that I spent a lot of time focused on in, in 2016. And in terms of the future of that type of threat, I think the the big challenge we face in our democracy is the threat represented by foreign influence in our information highway, in a nation state's ability to corrupt and interfere with our democracy and our elections through fake news and the publication of extremist views. We saw a lot of that in 2016, and I believe that we're going to see more. I was very focused in 2016 on the cyber threat to our election infrastructure, voter registration databases, uh, ballot collection, and so forth. Um, but we now know that 
the Russians were also very active in the promulgation of, of extremist views and, and, and fake news. And that's a that's a hard crack. Our our virtue, our advantage as a free and open society is also our vulnerability. And so that's in my view, in terms of our democracy, the big challenge we face for the future. Well, um, we, we certainly do. And, uh, you know, I, I, I did a little bit of uh, research, and uh, I think there was a quote from your grandfather uh, in 1949 when he, when he testified uh, before Congress, uh, who said that faith in the ultimate strength of the democratic philosophy and code of the nation as a whole has always been stronger than the impulse to despair. And in these times, sometimes we do have an impulse to despair, but uh, I think yep. your thoughts are consistent, certainly with, uh, I think, the very eloquent words of your, your grandfather about the strength of our democratic philosophy. But that's tested sometimes, and I want to ask you about that. You know, we talked about the challenges you had in, in 2014, 15, 16. How do you balance the release of information regarding potential attacks or attacks uh, and balance, you know, the protection of national security versus, you know, the public's right to know what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, I know that there was a lot of uh, discussion internally that's come out now uh, about how much publicly we should be talking about the Russian interference and in, in potential interference in the election in 2016. How do you balance protecting national security versus sharing what you can with the with the public that's a good question and i used to tell audiences when i was in office that the essence of a job like homeland security or national security is finding the right balance in a free and open society between preserving our physical security and preserving our civil liberties and you can go too far in one direction or another and I used to say that for those in national security, preserving and protecting our physical security is as important as preserving our civil liberties and our, our freedoms. And we're the guardians of, of both. Now, in terms of finding the right balance between security and public's right to know, I believe that... <clears throat> The more the public is armed with information about a threat, the stronger we are as a society. And so those in public office these days are often very reluctant to ask for public help, public participation in our efforts. But I kind of believe it's important, you know, when you're asking when you're trying to address uh, the terrorist threat, for example, public awareness and public vigilance is a key component of that. If you see something, say something is a key component of public safety. And the more the public is armed with the right kind of information, the better we all are. And so my approach when I was Secretary of Homeland Security, and a big part of being Secretary of Homeland Security is being the public face of the government in 
explaining to the public what our current threat environment is. And my approach to that was to be as honest as possible and to describe the threat in terms that do not unduly alarm the public, but accurately portray the situation we face, and then say, and here are the 10 things your government is doing about it. Public always wants to know what we're doing to keep them safe. And then say, if we can, we do not discourage you from going to public events or public gatherings or celebrating, say, July 4 or Memorial Day. Uh, public should continue to do that, but be vigilant. And if you lay it out in that way, I think the public appreciates that we do not live in a risk-free society, but nor do they want to hear that those who are responsible for their safety are, are in any way being cavalier or casual about it. So I, 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 I try to, I've tried to give the public as much uh, as we could without unduly alarming them. It's there, I, I think there's no good that comes from telling people uh, to hide under their mattress and to scare them in a way that they want to hide under their mattress. There's, there's no good that comes of that. You make people paranoid, suspicious, and that does not uh, aid in public safety, in my view. Now, when it came to Russia in 2016, I and a number of others in the Obama administration believed strongly that we had to tell the public about what we knew about the Russian threat to our democracy before the election. And so Jim Clapper and I, he was the director of national intelligence at the time. October 7th, we issued the joint statement that warned the public about the the Russia threat to the election, and we were able to declassify what we knew and put it out there for the benefit of the public because we believe that a public armed with that information is better than if we sat on it. Well, you did come out with that on October 7th of 2016, uh, a month before the, the general election. It didn't seem to get the coverage that you'd think it would uh, at no, the time. It, it was a busy, I guess it was a busy news day, right? Uh, it was a very busy news day. <laughs> and we had, the, we had Hurricane Matthew working its way up the Florida coast. We had that statement. We had the so-called Access Hollywood video, which was uh, released that day. And then we had the release of John Podesta's emails. So the statement was crowded out, and it was literally below the fold news that day in the Washington Post and the New York Times. And it was really only until about December, well after the election, that the public, that the press really started focusing in on the fact that the Russians had interfered with our election. Now, and, and then at that time, they were like, well, why didn't somebody say something? And of course you did. Uh, and it just was not, uh, didn't get the coverage that uh, perhaps it, it should have. Uh, you know, you talked about your philosophy as, as Secretary of, of Homeland Security. And now, obviously, you're a private citizen now, but you still uh, can see what's going on. Can you tell us what, what are some of the significant uh, approaches uh, with respect to Homeland Security that you're seeing now that are different uh, than during the time when you were secretary? 
<laughs> That's a big question. Yes, it is. Uh, obviously, um, this administration's policies toward immigration enforcement are very different from the prior administration. For example, in the prior administration, in terms of how we prioritized deportations, we focused on public safety. We focused ICE's resources on the arrest and deportation of those who represent the biggest threats to public safety. And that meant not going after everyone you could find, but focusing on those who are behind bars, who are convicted felons. And ICE actually did that in the time I was secretary. Uh, we deported fewer people, but we were able to build what I believe were good, solid relationships with state and local law enforcement to work with them to get access to those behind bars who were undocumented, who had been ordered deported. And that was a benefit to public safety. Uh, now, a lot of local jurisdictions are have become sanctuary cities, and they're proud of it. And I don't think that benefits anyone in, public, in terms of public safety. Uh, <clears throat> this administration also has just recently uh, discontinued uh, aid to Central America. I think that's a big mistake. As long, lesson learned for me is as long as the poverty and violence that exists now in El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala continues to exist, we're going to have a problem with illegal immigration from those three countries. The push factors in illegal immigration, this was a lesson learned for me, the push factors overwhelm the system. And you can put a lot of border security on our southern border as a deterrent, but as long as the underlying conditions in Central America exist, families there are making the basic determination to flee a burning building. And we started to make an investment in eradicating the poverty and violence in those countries. It can be done with strings attached, sort of a planned Colombia, like what happened in Colombia. You, it can be done, and the experts within Homeland Security have said that the modest investment we've made so far was beginning to make a difference. And so if unless we address the underlying problem, we're going to con continue to wrestle with illegal migration on our southern border. And as we speak right now, apprehensions, and this is how we measure total attempts to cross the border, apprehensions are the highest they've been in 12 years, which is very unfortunate. Well, you, you know, you mentioned the investment that uh, we made under uh, the Obama administration to what's referred to as the Northern Triangle countries, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala. And, yeah. you know, those were uh, uh, investments that were made both for humanitarian reasons, but also for our own self-interest, because if those countries are well, able to... Correct. To, it's not... Right. It's right. not just... I mean, this is not just some lofty humanitarian goal. Uh, you could you could think of it in terms of America first. This is our border security we're talking right. about here. And if we and make if you those... want to address right. border security, you've got to address the, the causes of illegal immigration. So rather than, you know, put those billions of dollars into, you know, building uh, a wall, for example, you could put some of that money into trying to let these countries help 
their own citizens and prevent them from necessarily having to flee those countries, which would essentially solve the problem that we're seeing. And I'm wondering, by taking that money, I don't have a I don't have a categorical view on a wall. Hmm. We do have wall on our southern border. Yes. We have 654 miles of wall on our 1900 mile border. And there's always more border security we can invest in, either to fortify existing barriers, replace existing barriers, or perhaps add to what we have, but in a smart way, in a smart investment in the taxpayer's money, along with what border security experts tell you is necessary in terms of surveillance, lights, roads, mobile surveillance, detection equipment at ports of entry, and so forth. I I, I want to hear your thoughts on, you know, when we take this money away that, that we had been providing to some of these countries that we're now seeing an influx of, of immigrants from, um, can it be expected that by removing that incentive and those resources from those countries that now we're going to, uh, the problems in those countries are going to become more severe that would, uh, in fact, encourage people trying to come to our country now if we took that money away? Well, hopefully, hopefully the spigot gets turned back on. You know, these are this these kinds of investments are multi-year, and you're not going to see an effect one way or another for for you know a long time. It, it, the The effects of this are not overnight. However, I think if we do discontinue support for eradicating poverty and violence in those countries, it sends a message of hopelessness and despair and a message that you don't have a bright future where you are. I'm concerned that that may fuel even more illegal migration. You have to know that illegal migration from the Northern Triangle is fueled by smugglers, coyotes. Almost no one immigrates migrates illegally from the Northern Triangle by themselves. They pay a smuggler several thousand dollars to basically smuggle or escort them through Mexico into our country along the southern border. And they, they sell messages. They, they, they have an economic interest doing this. You know, the sale's going to expire at the end of the week. Go now. And so the coyotes put out messaging about what they say is going on in this country. And one of the things I learned from my Republican predecessor, Mike Chertoff, is that illegal migration is a very market-sensitive phenomenon. It reacts sharply to information in the marketplace about perceived changes in immigration enforcement policy. And we saw that in 2014 when we ramped up certain of our enforcement practices, the numbers fell off sharply. But as long as the underlying conditions exist, the underlying poverty and violence in the Northern Triangle persist, we're going to continue to see legal migration coming from that region of the world, and the Trump administration is learning that now. 
Mr. Secretary, you, you mentioned your, your predecessor uh, in uh, the Department of Homeland Security uh, and what you learned from your predecessor. Do you have any interactions uh, with the current Homeland Security Secretary? Uh, I, I knew you were going to ask that. As soon as I said, as soon as I referred <laughs> to Mike Chertoff, I knew you were going to ask that. Well, I'm interested uh, if there is any, if very, there is any no, interaction. Very little. Very little. Um, I believed strongly in getting advice from as many different sources as I could and that uh, no political party, no party affiliation has a corner on good ideas. And so I consulted my Republican predecessor, Mike Chertoff, often. He's a good friend. Um, the current administration has consulted me very little on on these matters. And now, in fairness, a lot of the people who supported me when I was secretary are still there. The the two the the, the two go to people that I had for immigration enforcement were Tom Homan and Kevin McAleenan. Tom became the acting director of ICE. He then retired, and Kevin McAleenan is today the commissioner of Customs and Border Protection. So. A lot of the same people that were there in senior positions, senior career positions, um, stayed over into the Trump administration and could very often explain to my successors what I did and why I did it. So there was the ability for there to be some continuity there, certainly. So, yes, correct. You have to remember that in a workforce of 230,000 people, um, less than 1% are political appointees. Everyone else stays and they have the same job on Monday that they had on Friday. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your time uh, with uh, working with President Obama. How is it that you got to know President Obama? I met him in June 2006 at a fundraiser for my senator in New Jersey, Bob Menendez, he asked me to co-chair an event, and he said, don't worry, we'll fill the place. We're going to have Cory Booker and Barack Obama come. And that's where I met Senator Obama, and we became friends and acquaintances. And then on November 22nd, 2006, he called my office here at Paul Weiss. He left a message. I still have the pink message slip as a memento. I returned the call, and he said he was thinking about running for president. Would I support him if he did. And I said, Barack, don't worry. If you run, I'm definitely with you. Because I knew then, something told me then that this campaign was going to be historic. And I was being asked to get in on the ground floor of an historic event. And so I said right away that I would. And so for the next two years, I was involved in his campaign and then his transition and then his administration. So it was a 10-year adventure. And and while you were uh Secretary of Homeland Security, you obviously were involved in national security briefings. Uh, describe for me what those what those briefings were like. Obviously, not the specific details, but just the the general process for uh, national security decisions being made and well, your involvement in that. Well, that, that's interesting. <clears throat> Let me talk about two things. First, the most important part of my day was when I got to work at about 6.30 in the morning, 
the first thing I'd do is plow into the intelligence book I received, which included the PDB. It also included the apprehension numbers on the southern border from the day before, but my intelligence book was filled with classified matters that my intelligence staff wanted me to see. They'd work through the entire night to assemble this, and depending upon the nature of someone's interest and the particular cabinet position you occupy, that's how the book is composed, I'd go through it. I would then sit down with my staff, and we would go through the book again and talk through some of the highlights to make sure so that they could be sure that I saw what they wanted me to see. I'd ask questions. If there was disagreement among the analysts, I'd invite the analyst from the CIA or NCTC to come up and we'll talk it through. But that was my most important part of the day. And then in the morning, if I had time left over, I would spend time reading the newspapers simply to see how the press was covering what I already knew to be fact in the national security space. So that was a fundamental critical part of my day. In terms of how we made decisions in the Obama administration, I would say it was a very healthy decision-making process. We would have meetings of the National Security Council in the Situation Room or we would have meetings of what we referred to as the principals committee, which are cabinet officers in national security that the national security advisor would preside at, Susan Rice. And it was an inclusive process and President Obama encouraged discussion. He'd encouraged discussions, not just among the senior most people in the room, but very often the the backbenchers in the situation wrong. We refer to them in Washington as plus ones. I have my plus one with me. And he would look toward the backbench to see, does anybody else have anything to say? When I was a plus one for Bob Gates or Leon Panetta, when I was general counsel of the Department of Defense, he would look to us and we all felt entitled to say something if we had an intelligent, informed point of view. You don't speak up lightly with the President of the United States, but he had a collaborative, inclusive decision-making process, the result of which was when I walked out of a meeting with the President, it didn't always, he didn't always come out the way I thought he should come out, but the result was eminently reasonable and sound. And to me, that's the way to make decisions. And I also learned that from Bob Gates, who was Secretary of Defense for a period when I was general counsel, and Bob had a very inclusive decision-making process as well, the result of which is when it came time to me for me to be a cabinet secretary, I made sure that I made no move without consulting the experts within my department first and getting their points of view, and I would encourage and insist that they give me their points of view. And that leads, A, to healthy decision-making, and B, people, if they feel like they've been heard, will be prepared to support your, your decisions, I, in, my, in my view and in my experience. They don't always agree with the decision, but if they felt like they've been heard, they're more likely to support it and take some ownership of it. Now, um, was uh, President Obama, was, was, he a, was he a hot bench? Would there be 
a lot of questions or would there just be would you just be reporting on what you knew and he would just digest it uh well that's a good question um he everybody has their different management styles and their different ways of consuming information uh, Barack Obama was a reader, is a reader, and his work habits were that he would read at night. Um, you, you get the read ahead in advance of the meeting, and he would have read everything the night before, most likely. He would stay up late and and, and read, and so he'd come in to a meeting, and he would have read the stuff, and I was always impressed that he knew more than I thought he knew about something I was doing. And he would ask questions and his questions would reveal that he was informed, he was prepared, and he was a quick take. Um, you didn't have to spend a whole lot of time explaining something to him, he would get it. And as I said, the decision was always very sound and, and very reasonable and he, you, you felt like you had a good hearing, and this was a wise decision. You mentioned Robert Gates, the Secretary of Defense, when you were general counsel to the Sec to the Department of Defense in from two thousand. By the way, do you know that there are eleven some eleven thousand lawyers in the in the whole Department of Defense? If you include JAGS, um, it's the largest law firm in the country. And so you were uh, responsible for them. Robert Gates at the time. Uh, He's had some very kind words to say about working with you, that you were the finest lawyer he ever worked with in government, which is certainly uh, very high praise. Uh, for Must have a low bar. <laughs> <laughs> but there was, I want to ask you about your time uh, with the Defense Department, because there was an important issue during your, your Defense Department tenure uh, with respect to uh, finding Osama bin Laden bin Laden in, in May of 2011, and you were uh, involved in providing uh, the legal approval for U.S. Special Forces to go into Pakistan uh, to to find and, and eventually kill bin Laden. What were the legal and uh, considerations that you had to balance uh, when you were looking at that issue? Well, the uh, <clears throat> the role of the lawyers has been reported by an excellent New York Times reporter, Charlie Savage. Let me just say broadly that whenever we looked at, whenever I looked at a counterterrorism operation by the military, I would ask two questions. Is there domestic legal authority for the operation and is there international legal authority for an operation? And when we looked at whether there was domestic legal authority for an operation, uh, our guidepost was the 2001 authorization for the use of military force against the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and associated forces. When it comes to, and, and if the objective fit within that statutory authority, then the domestic legal authority existed. When it came to, in, to international legal authority, you have to ask yourself, what is the basis for going into another country to conduct a military operation? And there were three. There are three. One, host nation consent. Two, is there a UN, UN Security Council resolution authorizing use of force? Or three, and this one is the most controversial, whether 
you're going into another sovereign territory as an act of self-defense because the host nation is unwilling or unable to deal with the threat itself. And it has been reported that that was the international legal basis for our special forces going into Pakistan to get bin Laden. The domestic legal authority for getting bin Laden was plain. <clears throat> he was squarely within the 2001 authorization to use military force because he was the leader, inspiration, and one of the planners of the 9-11 attack and a member of al-Qaeda. And of course, you always have to look to assess whether the operation is consistent with traditional customary standards of uh, the laws of armed conflict. Proportionality, distinction, necessity, and the minimization of collateral damage. By the way, I didn't learn any of that at Paul Weiss. Uh, or in law school, too, probably. Stuff, yeah, was... or, or law school, either. That was all stuff I picked up on the job. Part of taking on a very demanding position, whether it's general counsel of the Department of Defense or Secretary of Homeland Security, is having a steep learning curve and the ability to learn and consume new information. And I have to say that my legal training in private law practice for demanding clients in big complex matters very much aided in that effort. You have to learn your client's business as well as the client understands it to effectively represent them in court and try their case and cross-examine witnesses. And those skills, uh, frankly, enabled me to learn these new complex areas of law. Well, uh, former Secretary Johnson, we, we greatly appreciate your service uh, to our country and for using the skills that you obviously have worked so hard to obtain uh, for the benefit of our nation. And I would like to also thank you for your time, your generous time, and and sharing uh, your insights and thoughts here on uh, the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. Thank you very much. We have Happy a, to do so. We have a feature, uh, a more lighthearted feature called uh, Movie, Book, or Music on Miranda Warnings, where you can share something uh, that uh, you'd like to share with our listeners that uh, say something uh, to you. Well, most people don't know this and are shocked to learn. Uh, I am a huge, huge classic R&B fan from the 50s, 60s, 70s, music from the 50s, 60s, 70s. And I have a favorite radio station, WBGO Newark, 88.3 on the FM dial. There's no more dial anymore on the FM dial. And it's public radio and no commercials. And if you give enough money to public radio, they let you do anything, including going on the radio station and being a DJ. So once a year, I am I do what's called host an hour on WBGO, and I DJ for an hour, and I play my favorite music, and it's probably my favorite thing to do in private life. Usually about every December, uh, you can tune in at about 9 a.m. on a Saturday and hear Jay Johnson uh, with his favorite playlist, and that's one of my passions. My other passion is model railroading. I have HO scale trains in my basement. I've recreated the Northeast Corridor in the basement of my house in Montclair. And that's my other favorite weekend activity. 
Well, WBGO, right, in Newark, we're going to listen to you in December. Do you, do you, you sing, got it. Do you sing at all, or is it you just playing other people's no, songs? No, no, I do not have a, I do not have that kind of voice. I like to think I have an FM voice, <laughs> but I don't have that kind of voice. The last thing I'll say, Dave, if I could, yeah, sure. is to encourage young lawyers who might be listening to this podcast to become involved in your bar association, whether it's state city, uh, or some other type of lawyers association, bar association. I've had extensive involvement in the bar association as a lawyer, and I found it one of the most valuable experiences of my legal career. And I think we have to make a concerted effort to continue to bring young people into bar association activities, committee activities. I chaired the Judiciary Committee of the New York City Bar for three years, which rates and approves all the judges in, in New York City, and I was on the executive committee of the city bar. And it was a truly valuable experience. I got to know other members of the profession, and I encourage all young people listening to this to, to become involved in, in your bar association. Well, well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Secretary, both for your service, for your for appearing here today, and for the nice plug for the Bar Association. Uh, obviously, it's uh, okay. It's uh, it's it's wonderful to have you, and uh, thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast, available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.